chapter 1, verse 15 and following. And I'm just going to use that as we, we begin this time in prayer. God, we give thanks to you for this church. Remembering this church in our prayers. And I keep asking that you, God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give this church a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know, they may know you better. And I pray that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened in order that they may know the hope that you have given to this church, which you have called all of us in the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that they may know your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age that we live in, but also in the one to come. And we pray for this church, Lord, that you have placed here in this town, in this time, that we would know that you have placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over this, his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you weren't a part of that challenge or you really didn't get into it, let me just encourage you. This is still something you can pray for your church. This is something you can pray as they get ready for Disciple Now next weekend. And, and as we come to this time, I'm, I'm very much aware that there's little minds that are saying, when is he going to stop talking and let us go to Kingdom Kids? So, all of you four years of age, up to second grade, uh, you can go to Kingdom Kids right now. And we are so delighted to have this many kids today. I, uh, I brought with me the real reason you've come and asked me to preach, and that's my wife, Judith. She's here today. Uh, so the mission trip meeting will, will be right here afterwards. The line to talk to Judith will be over here after we're done. Uh, when I left here 20 years ago uh, to go to Victoria, I was told, you can go, but Judith and your daughters have to stay. And I don't think they were really kidding about that. Uh, I know somebody really did a good job while they were here, and, and we appreciate the love and the, the, the feelings that we get when we come back here from so many deep friendships and seeing what God is continuing to do in his church and continuing to do in you. Uh, it's good to see Matt here with us today. I, can, I have been in two of the meetings that Matt has led in each of the associations of the area that he now leads, and he is doing a great job, and he's going to do a great job, and people are getting behind that. So, Matt, thank you. Thank you for answering that call. Uh, now, it, I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, find verse 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, while you go there, this week you saw some things about abortion. Because it was the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and, and there were many protests or walks or marches or prayer times around that and about that. I mentioned to you some time ago about one of our ladies who came through our Homes for Families children named Ashley and she is now a nurse. Let me go back to the beginning of her story. 
Ashley was a young woman with three children, unmarried, uh, living with a man who was not her husband. Uh, she became pregnant again, and he was very abusive. And she had enough of a connection with Christ and relationship with God that uh, basically she, she got out of that but came to a Christian counselor in her words to say, I wanted somebody to look into my life as a Christian counselor and tell me it's okay to abort this baby that belongs to this guy that is worthless. And the Christian counselor she came to was with Stitch Ministries and, and there wasn't. Uh, a, a permission given. There were options given. And she was given the option to, to go to homes for families. She was given the option to find help. Now, we are not a home just for pregnant women. We are a home for women with children and great needs. And, and that is what we call homes for families in, in Goliad and now outside Yoakum, Texas. But, but Ashley found what other women have also found, that in a financial crisis, in a personal crisis, in a spiritual crisis... There's a place to go to rebuild your life. When everything seems like a wreck, when everything seems to be falling apart and then there's more being added to that, there's a place to go. You have helped to provide that. You've helped to have a hand in that. And in some ways, you've had a hand in Ashley's little boy being born into the world, this fourth child. And you've had a hand in seeing her grow to the place she's now out on her own. She's a nurse. She's taking care of these four kids. God can do that. Nearly half of the women who get an abortion say these two things are the leading causes. I don't have the financial ability to take care of this new child. I don't have the personal strength or the ability just personally to care for another little one. And if we can help in that, if the church can help in that, there can be a lot of changes made and a lot of things happen. You've had a hand in that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of Ashley and all of us. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. What we're going to look at today, I've called what to expect of your next pastor. And what we're going to look at today is this passage that relates exactly to that. So let's just dive into it. Here is a trustworthy saying, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is in charge now of setting up pastors, leaders over these brand new churches full of brand new Christians who either come out of paganism or come out of Judaism and now they are Christians. And what do we do? How do we do this? It's hard to imagine. They had no experience with this whatsoever. But he says... If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is pastor, the word we would translate pastor, that's a literal translation of it there, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. More on that in a little bit. 
He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, those who are outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I walked into the Dairy Queen in St. Joe, Texas on a January day, not unlike this day. And as I walked in, of, of the 20 people there, most every one of them were sitting at their table looking at me. And I realized what had just happened. As I was walking up on a Wednesday after having been called to be their pastor the previous Sunday, and I was coming up on Wednesday to do prayer meeting, and I was going to meet with some folks about the move we were about to make and, and how we were going to go about that. And, and I am sure that as I was walking up, somebody said in the Dairy Queen loud enough that everybody heard, there's the new Baptist preacher. Now, St. Joe, Texas is a town of a thousand people. It is literally a one-stoplight town. And, and so everybody there was looking at me, knowing who I was. And I realized at that moment, I would never be anonymous in anything I did or any place I went in that town after that. And I wasn't. Now, what I would later find out is everybody in that town had expectations of me. Whether they were a part of my church or not, they had expectations of how the Baptist preacher at First Baptist Church of St. Joe is supposed to drive and how he's supposed to grocery shop and, and where he gets his clothes and, and how he likes to set the thermostat. And they had expectations of me. And, and sometimes they were reasonable and sometimes they were not. Do you have reasonable expectations of your next pastor? That, that's the question we're going to try to deal with today. But more so, the question is, do you have biblical expectations of your next pastor? There is guidance for the place you are as a church. Now, some of you, you're visiting here today. Some of you, you're not a part of this church. Some of you are saying, I'm not on the committee. It, 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 there will come a time... Where, church family, you will have a chance to vote on your next pastor. Those of you who are visiting, let me just encourage you and encourage all of us. This is a good thing to let it sink into our thinking of how we think of people in ministry. How we think and what we expect biblically of, of people who are pastors or ministers or work in churches or in ministries. This is a good way to judge our thoughts and our expectations and see if, if we're really being reasonable or are we being biblical. Now, as I read through this, there are 15 things, 15 qualifications that I can clearly point out here. And some of you are saying, oh, Lord, a 15-point sermon. No, no. There's just five, okay? Now, if I'd said there was five at the beginning, it was an old Lord, a five-point sermon. No, there's just five out of these 15. And we can group, or I can group these things easily, in my mind, around five different areas of life. And that's where we can say there's a biblical qualification and there's this biblical way we should think about this. And, and, and they are basically breaking these down as integrity, family, personality, maturity, and ability. Now, we, I can put them in words like that, so maybe we can all remember them better and write them down, if you, if you would, and, and keep them in mind. And again, this is a great prayer list for your next pastor. Lord, send us someone who, and just go through the list, and help me to understand and see someone who is this. 
I'm going to ask you to today, as we go through these five things, you think about yourself and where you are in this area. Because this is just the basics of the Christian life. We're not going to pull out something new that doesn't apply to everybody who is a Christian. So let's get into this first one of integrity. Above reproach, it says there at the very beginning. That literally meant there's not something to be laid hold of on him. Kind of a picture of there's not something to hold him back, to be a stumbling block to him. There's no hidden fault. There's no error. How do you know what that is? Well, you look at the rest of the list. The list tells you, okay, these are the things that if they follow this, if they are following God in these areas of growth in their own life, there's nothing to hold them back. There's nothing to trip them up. We could put drunkenness here, not given to drunkenness. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory. I, I do know of a couple of pastors who have had to resign and, and they've lost their ministries because they, they had a problem with alcohol. But let, one of the things we can do here, sometimes we do as a church, is we get so focused on the one thing that we miss the bigger picture that Scripture is trying to point to us here and the bigger thing that Paul is trying to tell us about this. And that is, you could, you could say, what Paul is really saying is there's, there's not an addictive behavior that has rule over his life. Now, alcohol was about the only way you could be addicted to something in their day and their time, and it was a problem. But uh, we, we have a whole, roast, whole host of ways that we can get addicted. And, and I will say, as somebody who works with pastors and works with church staff members, that the biggest addiction problem, unfortunately... In the church and in church leadership, both places, is an addiction to pornography. That is the most damaging and difficult thing that is going on right now. So when you look at this, you're looking at the principle, you're looking at the idea, you're looking at the big picture. And it's not to say that someone couldn't have had this in their past and now they've overcome it. It actually gives them a way to minister in new ways to new people who are also outside the church or inside the church who have this problem if they've overcome it. It can be an equipping thing, but it shouldn't be a present thing that's ongoing in their life. Uh, we could group into this idea of integrity, not violent. It literally meant not a striker, someone who doesn't lash out back. A uh, good way to look at that is how, how do they respond on social media? What do they post? What do they say? How do they go about handling things and communicating with other people, often with people they don't agree with? And that's what he's talking about here. He's not a striker, somebody who strikes back. And then we could group here under integrity. They're not greedy. Now, there used to be, and there was a time, where it was not uncommon. You would see a guy who's in it just for the money. You could see a guy who's not really there for the right reasons. I would say I see that very, very little anymore. Now, I, you have to go back to the 1980s when I began in ministry, and that was 40-something years ago. And, and I can look back and see many men who have fallen because of that. I don't see that happening much anymore. We'll, we'll talk about the number one thing that I see. But not just this idea of, well, they're not just in it for the money. But let's, let's take the big picture thing. They don't have a problem with money. They don't have a problem. How do they handle money? Now, some of you won't have an opportunity to ask them that personally. But this church has always done a good job uh, of looking into people and finding out who they really are. That is a good thing. Let me encourage you to continue to do that. You guys ran a credit check on me before I became pastor of this church. 
I, I passed somehow. I don't know how living in St. Joe, Texas, but uh, I passed that. And, and that's, that's a good thing to know. What, what are we dealing with? What are we getting into? Integrity. That's the, the first area we can look at and, and a place where we need to have biblical expectations. But also here in family. Because it mentions family pretty prominently in here. And we can put a lot of things in there. He is a faithful husband. And it literally says the husband of but one woman. Now, the divorce question is going to come up. And and you're probably going to get, as a a search committee, uh, resumes of, of men who have been divorced. And you're going to have to deal with that in a biblical way and pray through that and walk through that. Uh, that, that's not an easy thing to deal with. But again, let, let's not just get focused on that one thing. But what is the bigger issue it is talking to? It is he needs to have been faithful to his wife. He needs to be a faithful family man. And, and it goes on to say this. He needs to manage his family well. It asks the question, if he can't manage his family, how can he manage the church? Now, there's a way of saying, well, that's kind of a qualifying thing. He's got to be good enough at his home to manage the church. But, but let me just say, what it's really getting at, I'm convinced of, is that his family is his first ministry. His family is his first line of ministry. Now, sitting there in the pews, if you've not been in ministry or you're not related to a minister, you may never have seen this. But there is this constant challenge in his family for him to do the right thing. And yeah, there, there can be this dichotomy. Do I church choose family or do I choose the church? Do I do my family right or do I do my job right? That's not really the right question. I always have to start with family. I said I don't see many guys who get kicked out or they lose it because they're in it for the money. Don't see that much. What I've seen a lot of my contemporaries, the number one thing among men my age and people who were in seminary with me and pastored with me is they lost their family and they lost their ministry. They lost their marriage and they lost their kids and they lost their ministry. Nobody here is going to be anonymous in what they do in Kennedy, Texas either. And so sometimes for you to be able to understand this, it means he's going to have to make some choices about his family. And you're going to feel like, I'm the second one. And that's the way it should be. You won't always understand that. You won't always get that. There are more interruptions into his life than you will ever know. And usually the hardest interruptions he has to deal with, you'll never see. Those difficult times... Where in St. Joe, Texas, I had to go into a bathroom at 1 a.m. in the morning and get a knife away from a suicidal woman. Nobody in St. Joe ever knew that. There was a whole sleepless night. And there was whole things that we had to cancel from the next day. There were many times that family trips and vacations were altered. There's stuff that happens all the time, and he's got to choose his family. And there's a lot more ministry that you don't see. But just know he's got to do a good job there or he loses everything. His family is his first line of ministry. Now, one of my predecessors in in my church in in, uh, St. Joe, and he wasn't the guy right before me. He was like three pastors before me. 
But any time somebody mentioned him, I found, no matter who they are, they always said the same thing about him. They would say, Brother, and I've forgotten his name now, Brother Richard will say, That man loved his wife. That man loved his wife. And I kept thinking, What a powerful legacy he has left. Nobody remembers his sermons. Nobody remembers maybe all of his kids' names or or anything that they may have had a conversation with him about that was so important at that moment. But what they remember, years later, that man loved his wife. That's what you're looking for. The guy who can set the tone and, and who loves the Lord and loves his family and loves the church. And that's one big thing. But there's priorities within it that you have to realize he has to have. And you need to allow that. And you need to pray for him in that. Family. Integrity. Family. Let's move on to another thing that often comes up. And we can group some things here around it. Personality. His personality. There's a whole group of things that we could use here. And temperate. It meant he was not excessive. Some of your translations would say sober. Uh, and what does that really mean? Well, it's not so much about, you know, it's not about alcohol or addictive things. It is more of, about his thinking and about his balance in life. He's hardworking, but he's balanced. He's not given to the extremes. He knows how to handle life and his thinking and his personality. His, he's temperate. He is, another thing, is self-controlled. That's very close to that last one. He knows how to handle difficult things as he thinks about them. That's the way this word is really pointing to and, and talking about his thinking is sound. He is able to think through things well and difficult things well. He's respectable or of good behavior, orderly, personal in his personal life. And particularly that word means from a moral attitude and stance, he knows how to handle intricate, difficult situations because he's going to be Constantly in them all the time. And how does he handle himself in all of this? Now, you could be an extrovert. You could be like me, an introvert. And you can do this. You could be any number on the Enneagram, if you know what that is, and if you've done it, or any of these things that you've ever done at work or any sometime in school, to say, what is your personality? He can be of any personality. So a lot of times churches look for the opposite of the guy they didn't like. If, if he was an extrovert, we ought to get an introvert, somebody who studies the Bible and somebody who, you know, does his work and minds his own business. Or if he was too much of an introvert, we need somebody who gets out and somebody who meets people and somebody who never met a stranger. He can be any of those ways. Let me give you an example. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus gives two of his disciples a nickname. They're brothers. They're James and John. They are the sons of Zebedee, but he does not call them the sons of Zebedee. He calls them the sons of thunder. You know that. Put a gold star by your name. Wow. What do you think they would have said on social media? If Jesus Christ gives them the name sons of thunder. But years and years later, if you read through, through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John... You will hear John, the one who survived, saying, Little children love one another. For love is of God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God. For God loves us. You see this son of thunder saying these wise and wonderful and soft and gentle words. What has happened? Has he changed his personality? No. See, here's God's goal in all of our personalities is not to change us from who we really are. He created us a certain way. And he doesn't want us to be something else or pretend to be something else. But what he wants us to do is become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the change in personality. So what you're looking for is not somebody that you want to change or should change or that meets your expectation. You're looking for someone whose personality is being changed by God to be more like Jesus. That's what you're looking for and what he's looking for in your, in your life as well. That's the personality area of this. That we have a biblical expectation. The integrity, the, the family, personality, and let's move on to maturity. Because there's several words that are really related to that and, and even that word itself. It is to be gentle. That's a word that's used there. And, and literally, you could translate that, and one guy has a sweet reasonableness. In other words, the way he deals with people, he is kind, he is forgiving, he is forbearing. It, it has to do with how does he deal with high-maintenance people. Now, some of you are saying, what is a high-maintenance person? What are our high-maintenance people? I hate to tell you this, but if you don't know what it is, you probably are one. <laughs> and every church has them. Don't look at them right now. Look up here. <laughs> But how does he handle high-maintenance people? You can see that pretty quickly. You can see that in, in, the, in his past, in the way he's done things. He, he's got to be able to have this gentleness with all kinds of people in all different situations, and that's not easy. He's got to be able to do, as I have had to do a couple of times, a funeral for a suicide in the morning and deal with those people and do a wedding in the evening and deal with those people. There has to be that ability to move among those in a maturity to handle those situations. It also said he is not quarrelsome. Good question to ask is, how do you handle conflict? It only means he abstains from fighting. He doesn't get into petty conflicts. He doesn't get into stuff that he shouldn't get into. And, and let me just say, here's a place where whoever it is, he's going to come in and he's going to have to prove himself. Because people are going to look at him and get a taste of his personality and make judgment calls. And it's growing in our world that it's less and less favorable right off the bat. This week, the Gallup poll came out that he does every, every so often. And, and he asked people, what is the most trustworthy, in your opinion, the most trustworthy type of people in a profession? So what's the most trustworthy profession? Interestingly enough. It's nurses, number one, and veterinarians, number two. All right, way to go, nurses. Guess where pastors are? Way down the list, the lowest they've ever been in all the years he's been doing this. Only 32% of people think a pastor is a trustworthy person. Only 32%. Now, the good news is pastors are still above attorneys, bankers, and journalists. <laughs> Sorry to say that to you, not, not drawing any judgments here. I'm just saying, in our world today, he's going to be looked at, you're going to have to prove yourself to me. 
you're going to have to overcome some stuff with me. And, and if he comes here and, and you're looking at this guy as a church member and you're saying that, you've got a problem bigger than his problem. You've got to prove yourself to me. I have some questions. Now, some of you have some scars. Some of you have some wounds. Some of you have some other things. But just know God has a biblical way of us looking at this idea of maturity. Let me move on and try to address this thing. What does it mean about that he would not become like the devil or fall into the devil's trap? Well, let me just try to sum up a big thing that's kind of controversial in a really short way. Lucifer, the angel of light, became the devil and fell from heaven in his rebellion against God because of pride. Pride. Is he a humble person? Is he growing in humility and humbleness? Now, you, you can't ask him that and he can't give you, yes, I'm a humble person because then he just loses it. Uh, it has to be something that is deeper that you can get, that you can grow in and understand. He must be mature. Mature doesn't mean he's attained this place above everybody else in the church or he's better than everybody else. It just means he is maturing in this process of growing how to handle this, this different area of life as, as he is in and it changes and then he moves to another and he moves to another, that he is growing. Now, are you growing? How are you doing in this maturity thing? That's a good question to ask yourself. But let's deal with the final thing, ability. Ability. We've looked at integrity, family. We, we've looked at personality and maturity. Let's... Let's think now and, and realize, okay, we're just now getting to what's usually on a job description. What are his abilities biblically that the Bible says a pastor has to have and an ability to do things? He has to be hospitable. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody comes over to his house all the time. It can be. doesn't necessarily mean. The word means more about how does he treat people. Does he make people feel welcome? People that are different than him, people who are of the faith, people who are not of the faith, people who are like him, people who are not like him. Can he be comfortable with them and make them feel comfortable? Is he hospitable? Does he have that ability to work with people who are different? It says here, able to teach. Does he present things in such a way that you understand the Bible better? That you understand God better? That you understand the life of Jesus Christ in you better? Not that he can persuade you to hear his opinions or his thoughts or he grasp all the different things that are trendy right now. It is, can he teach you the Bible and all the things that are in it, able to teach? And then there is this ability that he has to have a good reputation with outsiders. Let me just say that boils down to how does he deal with lost people? People who do not know Jesus. People that you can think of now that you love and that you care for and maybe in your family. How does he deal with lost people? It's a good question to ask him. What, what, how do you deal with friends who are lost and people that are lost? What's your, your last conversation with someone who is lost about Jesus? It's, it's a good thing to probe in him, but it's also a good thing to ask ourselves. How do I deal with lost people? What do lost people think of me as a representative of First Baptist Church of Kennedy? How do people think when, when I treat them the way I do? Now, we, we've hit these five areas. These are the qualifications. Let me just say this. Bottom line is, 
These qualifications must become your expectations. Let me say this again. These 15 things should become, as you follow God, as you read his word, your expectations of your next pastor. But you're saying, but what about this? What, what about that? I, I can guarantee you that there's two churches in my early ministry that we didn't have a chance to go to because when they called us and they found out my wife doesn't play piano, that was it. That was their expectation. Our next pastor has to have a wife that plays the piano. Make sure your expectations are biblical. How do I do that? I begin to pray through this, and I begin to look into my own life. And that's a very, very important thing. Uh, On these five areas, if I asked you to give yourself a letter grade on each one of them, A to F, A, passing and doing great to failing, how would you do? What's your best of these five areas? What's your worst? Maybe God's trying to tell you something through this. Again, this is the basics of the Christian life. This is nothing new. It's nothing different than everybody else in the Christian faith who follows Christ. These are things we have to do. And let me say this. If you're not growing in these areas, you will not recognize somebody who is. If you're not understanding what Jesus is doing in your life, you're not going to understand what Jesus is doing in somebody else's life, and you're not going to be on board with what he's got for the future of the church. So that's why it's important to point the finger back at ourselves and begin to ask ourselves these questions. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to his hometown, little town of Nazareth, small town, and he preached a trial sermon to be the Messiah. The people on planet Earth who knew Jesus the best, who had known him for 30 years, all began, well, where did he learn to talk like that? At the beginning, by the time he got through and it was time for a vote, they didn't vote. They got together and threw him out and were going to throw him off a cliff. They were so mad at him because he did not meet any of their expectations. And Jesus just walked through the crowd and went on his own way. And did great works other places, but none there. Why? Because they didn't have the right expectations of the Messiah. They didn't have biblical expectations of the one that God would send. Or ones that God could change to understand who he is sending. And that's the danger we all face. That we would miss what God is doing. We would be on the outside looking in so take this and use this maybe you can use this yes uh, as you look at your new pastor and next pastor maybe you can use this to evaluate a relationship in the past or the present with somebody in ministry maybe you can use this to evaluate a scar maybe you can use this to pray for what is God going to do next but maybe you just need to use this to pray about you and where you are John would write this as he talks about Jesus and and how he came into this world. And it's a very sad and telling thing, but very powerful thing and positive thing at the end. John 1, 11, he says this. He came to his own. His own hometown, his own 
for his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Children of God. That we would all be changed to be like him. Is that what he's telling you today? You get a chance to vote on that. You get a chance to answer that question. Father, we come to you today and we pray that you would do things in our lives to enable us to see where we stand in accordance to your word, in accordance to your will, in accordance to your ways. Give us today an ability to see what the next step is you have for us, how you are calling us, where you're leading us, the changes you want to make in us so that we can understand your kingdom and the power of it and the glory of it. But most of all, that we could follow Jesus today as he leads us. And today, Lord, help us to do that in his name. Amen. Now, I'm going to be here at the front. If there's something to pray about, if there is a conversation you want to have,